Good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Betsy. I'm a member here, and I will be reading our sermon scripture passage this morning. Um, So today we will be in the book of Matthew, chapter 9, verse 35 through 10, verse 25. So I invite you to to turn there in your Bible. Um, You can also follow along on the words on the screen. And if you need a Bible, we do have some um, in the table by the door that you can grab as our gift to you. So once again, we're reading from Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 through chapter 10, verse 25. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious about how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will raise against, rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next, for truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Betsy. You may take your seats. You're welcome for the long scripture readings, which increase your attention spans again and uh, help undo all the sitting at your desk each week. Uh, 
No, in, in narrative sections of scripture, it's good to do larger sections. I mean, their scriptures were originally meant to be just listened to. And with narrative in, in particular, it's helpful not to think, you know, didactively or instructively, but just to sit in it and let it, you know, affect you as you read it. And so that, that's one reason why we're doing bigger sections here. And so uh, for those of you who are new, or as you can see, we're in the Gospel of Matthew looking at the life of Jesus, and uh, each Gospel writer has a theme that they emphasize within the biography of Jesus, just like any human biography will emphasize a particular theme about that person's life. And for Jesus, Matthew is showing that the main teaching of Jesus is that he brings his followers into a, a better kingdom, meaning when you follow Jesus, it's not just that you adopt the, like, the right religion, right, or, or the true way to view reality. But he gives you a more, a beautiful vision of reality, a more rich way to understand people and God and yourself. And so uh, that's what we're looking at in Matthew. And <clears throat> look at here in verse 36 of chapter 9, because this is a pivot point in Matthew's gospel. Um, actually, sorry, verse, yeah, verse 35. So it says, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Now, if you have a really good memory and you've been with us since we started Matthew, you'll notice that this sentence is pretty much verbatim what happened in chapter 4, verse 23, right before the Sermon on the Mount. I'll read it. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So you, you feel the similarity there? So this line, it's kind of like a a theme song or like Jesus's walkout song. Like when you hear it, you should know something amazing is about to happen. And when it happened in chapter 4, Jesus then gives his master class, the Sermon on the Mount, which is basically how believers should live in such a way that opens up pockets of heaven on earth. And the Sermon on the Mount mainly relates to how Christians relate to one another, each other in the church. <clears throat> but now as we head into chapter 10, Jesus is now going to give a master class on how the church should relate to the world. That's chapter 10, just a basic way to understand chapter 10. How should the church relate to the world? And uh, this topic, if you're not already thinking it, is the subject of many heated debates. You know, sp maybe just especially, it seems like, even more so over the past couple of years. You know, so should, should Christians be involved, should the church be involved with politics? Or should we just isolate ourselves from the world like, you know, like monks? Um, should we just preach the gospel? Uh, or should we care about social issues as well? And while Jesus doesn't get into, you know, like, super particulars here, he does give us some really helpful handholds to use as principles for how we think as the church corporate and as individuals on how we relate to the world. All right, and uh, kids, it's so glad to have you here with us, and so you can help make sure your parents are practicing this as well, okay? Um, so here are the, the three principles that Jesus gives us for how the church relates to the world. So he gives us what our attitude should be, uh, number two, what our practices should be, and then number three, uh, what should be our expectation as, as we live here before he makes all things new? Okay, so our attitude, our, pra our attitude toward the world, right? Our practices in the world and then our expectations. So first, number one, our attitude. <clears throat> and so here, before he gives his class in chapter 10, like he frames everything here in verse 35 to 38, and this is really important. So see, see what Matthew writes in verse 36. When he, that's Jesus, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So this word for had compassion uh, translates to be moved with compassion or to be 
to be moved at the deepest center of your being. And last Sunday, I mentioned how just on, yeah, it was last Saturday, we had to put our our favorite pet down. And this entire week, like, in my soul, <laughs> it felt like it just, there was a physical ache within me. I'm like, how, like, he's a pet, like a, a furry, really friendly, cute pet, but just, but yet there's this deep ache within, you know, all week, and I'm still feeling it even today. And what Matthew's saying is even deeper than the ache I've been experiencing or the ache you may have experienced from the loss of even, you know, someone or something greater than a pet in your life. When Jesus sees the crowds, when Jesus sees crowds, when he sees people, his knee-jerk reaction is compassion. And I think about, it's about a decade ago, about a decade ago or so, I went to Norway. And when I was in Norway, I took a hike. And if you've been there, it's a pretty well-known hike. It's called Prekastolen or Pul- Pulpit Rock. And it's this, you know, huge sheer rock that overlooks the fjords of Scandinavia. It's beautiful. It's like you're in Middle Earth. And so throughout the hike, you know, there's that point in a lot of hikes where you, you're about to turn the bend, where you're about to see the vista, right, that you're going to stand over. And there's always that moment of like, are there going to be a lot of people here? And, you know, so I, I turn the corner and I see you know, this magnificent landscape, which is just swarming with people. And I can tell you, my knee-jerk reaction was not compassion. You know, it's like, oh, punk jerks, you're ruining my photo opportunity, to, you know. And I just, I didn't like the fact that there were a lot of people there. When I go to the post office in the afternoon and there's a long line, I'm annoyed. I don't have compassion. And, you know, what Matthew's saying is Jesus, no matter how tired, no matter how busy he is, when he sees crowds, he has compassion. And so, as the church, like before we talk about strategy or philosophy of how the church relates to the world or, or doesn't, like our first approach needs to be a love for people. Right? It, it has to start there. People who are made in God's image, you know, in need of grace, just like we all are. And uh, there's a book that came out recently called Breaking the Social Media Prism by Chris Bale. He's a sociologist at Duke. And he, one of the things he points out is due to its inherent structure, especially Twitter, social media sets us up to dehumanize the people that we see and engage with because essentially what happens is when you, when you go on there, you tend to view people not as people, but you just view them as avatars for the, like the good thing that you want to be associated with or the bad thing that you want to oppose. Right, and so I'm reading this, and I'm I'm kind of I'm not engaged on Twitter, and so I'm you know I'm reading this like feeling a little self-assured of myself, like oh you know I'm not part of those dehumanizing conversations on Twitter, but I thought about it, and you know if I'm at a if I'm at a gathering of friends, if I'm say at a at a family get together, and someone there makes a comment that you just goes deeply against one of my values, like my knee-jerk reaction is just to reduce that person to the thing they said, right? Their position or their, their, the attitude they carry. And then to extricate myself, you know, from their presence as quickly as I can. But Jesus isn't like this. So this is why Jesus is so fascinating because does Jesus hate sin? Yes. Does Jesus draw a, a stark line between those who embrace him and those who are opposed to him? Yes. But when Jesus looks at people, what he sees first is not their sin. It's not their opposite, opposition to him. What he sees first is their helplessness, is what he, he sees their hurts. He sees their defense mechanisms. He sees their longings, and he moves toward them to make them whole. 
And so I, I want to invite you guys to, you know, in the coming weeks and months to maybe do a little bit more work than we normally do in inviting God to work with us and just like you know, our, our reflexive response toward people, especially the people, the people you really, you see in person or, you know, like those people out there. And just to start to, you know, to ask for the heart of Jesus. And then as you do engage with people and, you know, someone says something that, that is hurtful or just grinds your gears in some way, I think a healthy Jesus-centered response rather than moving right to, you know, anger and retaliation or distancing ourselves in some way, is to ask the question, you know, like here it says, Jesus, it's, it's their helplessness that he sees. Just to first ask, like, what, this person's either probably in pain or afraid of something, or they're reaching for significance in some way, which is causing them to say what they said. And see if even that starting point doesn't help you on a, on a healthier trajectory toward loving people as Christ does. Okay, so, th- so that's number one. When we see faceless crowds, when we see real people in front of us, number one, our attitude has to be compassion. So now with that as the foundation, what are our practices as we think about as apprentices of Jesus engaging the world? And so Jesus, he gives us a few here. And the first one is selfless service. Selfless service. So here, see here where he writes in uh, verse nine as he's sending the 12 out. Uh, which are really representative for all of us, all believers in the world, not just the, the staff of the church. Uh, he says, acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the labor deserves his, his food. Now, first it looks like he might be advocating a poverty-based approach to ministry, right? Like Christian ministers or Christians in, in particular should be poor. But he can't be saying that because of how he ends it. He says the labor deserves his food or the labor deserves his wages. So Jesus is all about fair wages. So what is he saying? And the key is in the beginning of verse 9 where he says, acquire no gold. Another way to translate that is win no gold. So what he's getting at is the church on a corporate and a individual level must not have profit or reciprocity as our motive for loving the world. So you think about uh, a church institution. Like, is it wrong for a church to buy a building? No. A a building can do wonders for rooting a church in a community and serving the community, if that's what you're doing, serving the community. But if the building is ostentatious and lavish and the ministers have the nicest cars in town, then that ministry is probably suspect. Okay? Or, Or think about maybe something that's a little bit more subtle. So it's common, and you know, I, I admit it was, it was tempting for me to think this way when, when doxology started, especially in, sometimes it's like, in the, maybe you don't hear this, but in the church world, like planting churches in cities can be viewed as kind of hip, you know, because you're, you're in the city, you know, where the in people are, and it's hard, and so it can be easy for a church to be like, oh yeah, we're the ones in the cities, you know, it's expensive here, people are opposed to the gospel, it's hard, but look at all the good we're doing, look at how we're helping people. And you see now what it's about is, it's about the church's reputation, Right, rather than the church actually loving people for themselves. And we all know how awful it goes when the church stops at nothing to preserve its reputation. Or think about yourself as you love other people. Like many of you may have found yourselves in a situation where you do something generous for somebody or kind to somebody and they don't say thank you, they don't reciprocate in some way. And you get kind of mad or you get kind of bitter or maybe they just continue to be mean to you. And you have to ask yourself, if I'm angry, why am I angry? Could it be because really I was being generous to them 
because I like the feeling they give me when they show me gratitude, right, rather than actually loving them for who they are. Okay, so that's number one. We have to love people for themselves, no strings attached. Okay, so that's number one, selfless service. Number two, he gives us this balance of wisdom and innocence, wisdom and innocence. So he sums it up in verse 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So first, be wise, be shrewd. Uh, Know how people tick. Don't let people just manipulate you and run all over you. And use strategy. That's also what he means by wisdom, and Jesus does this. In verse 6, he he says, go to Israel first, but then in verse 18, and we see this later in Acts, he says, but then go to the, the Gentiles. And then in verse Verse 11 and 12, he talks about when you go to a town, find someone who's receptive to the gospel and put down roots there because that person will be a bridge builder in, into the community. And you see Paul model this in Acts. When he goes to a new place, he looks for what's called the, the God-fearers. And God-fearers, they weren't Jews, but they weren't Greek pagans either. They were Gentile converts to Judaism, right? So they're Gentiles, but they believed the Bible, and therefore they served as bridge builders into the community, So Jesus is saying, you know, use wisdom, use strategy. And this is one reason why in our attempt to use wisdom, Kelsey and me, when we helped doxology start, like one of the things we first said to each other is, we're here to stay. You know, and until like barring God clearly calling us somewhere, we're here to stay because as a rule, it's healthier for a church and for a community to put down roots rather than to bounce around. Or you think about, you know, even as individual Christians, we need to use wisdom. As an example, we need, to be, we need to be thoughtful. So often when I hear about people talk, talk about, you know, should I take this job? Should I move here? It's like the main framework is usually in terms of preferences, right? So would I like this new city better? Would this job advance me in my career? And those questions are okay, but Jesus would seem to encourage us to put another question first, right? And that would be, would taking this job, would moving to this place increase my ability to do gospel witness with the very short time that I have here? Okay, so, so that's number one. We should use wisdom in our approach. If you, if you work in politics, you, you should use wisdom as, as much as you can. Okay, but also there needs to be innocence, right? He says, wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And hey, I realize to- toes may be stepped on here, but like a sad reality of our nation over the past like generation or so has been how many believers have tied their faith to a political block or platform. And we, by and large, saw this first take place with the mainline church about a generation ago where many mainline churches basically said, okay, it's the progressive, liberal, Democrat, democratic platform. Like, that, that, is the, the, uh, that is the essential way to be a Christian. And, but recently, we've seen uh, many conservatives make the same move, right? Where you see many Christians, they've said, okay, it's, it's, the, it's the Republican Party, especially the, a very far-right conservative wing of, of the Republican Party. Like, that is the essential way to be a Christian. And this isn't all mainliners, this isn't all evangelicals, but at least in the public's mind, this is what's happened. That's why a lot of people are more uh, suspect or they, they're suspicious of Christians is because they view Christianity as like a, a power block. And one of the results of this is believers who've attached their faith to a political platform, now they're driven way more by 
partisan attitudes, right, rather than the scriptures. So, i.e., a, a hatred of enemies and, bas- and a, like, you know, accomplish God's ends through the world's means kind of approach. You know, just a general approach toward to not thinking clearly. Certainly not showing compassion. Okay, but what Jesus would say, and you, often you hear, you hear things at the effect of like, yeah, well, it's, it's not practical to, to be gentle. It's not practical to love my enemies. Jesus never says, follow my commandments unless it looks impractical to you. <laughs> okay, so no matter who we are, and politics matters, or we need believers working in these spaces, we should dialogue about, you know, how should I vote in this upcoming election? Okay, if we can handle that, hopefully, as a church. But doing so, looking at the world and people through the grid of Jesus, rather than through the talking points that the different platforms give us, you see? Okay, so we always have to remain innocent as doves as well, in addition to, in addition to being wise as serpents. So that's the next one he gives us, is selfless service, wisdom, innocence. And then number three, he gives us an, another balance, and this is deed-word ministry deed and word ministry. So in verse 8, he tells his disciples, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. So in other words, care about bodies. Help people with the things that are enslaving them. That's what the demons thing is about. And uh, so next month, I'm on the back half of June, I'm going to Kenya on a short-term missions trip, and it's with Times 12, uh, times 12, it's one of our uh, key church planning uh, networks that we're a part of, and we're working with a guy named Gideon who found an organization called Renewal Project Africa, and we're basically, we're just going to go, it'll just be a few of us, and really the aim is we're, we want to learn from him, and we were on a call with him this past week, and he's just telling us about, you know, what his organization does, they help, you know, churches, they help plant churches that plant churches, and he says, yes, absolutely we equip our church leaders to proclaim the gospel through word, right? Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. However, as we do this, we also teach there, there's poverty and hurt everywhere in Kenya. Okay, you can't escape it. And so we also teach our church leaders how to, like, we give them health training. We teach them how to treat burns and how to stop bleeding. We help them equip their people to get out of poverty and be better workers and improve their homes, why? Because God cares about the entire person. Okay, so, so we need to do deed-based ministry. So this dichotomy that you often hear of, you know, should we just talk about sin and grace, or should we care about poverty and racism and sexism? Yes. <laughs> okay, the two go together, right? They're all part of God's salvation project. So we, we need to do deed-based ministry, but then also there, there is word-based ministry, so see in verse 7, he says, proclaim as you go. So we have to use our words. And then when he says in verse 14, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet. So this is a cultural way of saying you're in great danger of refusing the gospel message. And then he says in verse 18, you know, bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And so we do need to use our words. And as we saw, what was it last week? Yeah, I mean, forgiveness of sins really is most important, right? Because that's how we're first brought into relationship with God. And as we think about how we should go about using our words to love the world, I heard something really helpful uh, by Russell Moore. He's, a, he's an author and ethicist. And he made the point that 
most people tend to view themselves as either a prosecuting attorney or a defense attorney, just when it comes to a lot of issues. And just by default, we tend to gravitate toward the, the prosecuting attorney side of things. Right? So it's the air we breathe, you know, whether it's the um, social justice TikToker policing pronouns or whether it's the own the libs uh, right winger um, on, you know, on YouTube. Like we take the approach of who are the bad guys and how can I tell them they're evil and wrong and I'm going to win over them? The problem is this isn't how the Bible talks about how we should bear witness to the world because the world already has an extremely adept accuser, the devil. And so for us, as we think about how we love the world, our main approach should be to start with something like John 3.17, which says God didn't send his son Jesus to condemn the world, but so that the world may be saved through Jesus. And so you think, think about what a defense attorney does. I realize we have lawyers in the room, and I'm not very well versed on this, but like generally what a, what a defense attorney does, okay, they, they get with their client, the defendant, and they say, okay, let's take an honest look at the situation and figure out how to get you acquitted. And there's a lot of honest conversations that take place behind those closed doors. And the point is to acquit them. And so as we, as we think about people who don't know Jesus, as we talk or want to talk with people who don't know Jesus, our main approach can't be, okay, like, how can I condemn you? But how can I come alongside you and show you the, the honest reality, right, that we are sinners. We are in rebellion toward God. This is a situation that we're all in, by the way. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came to bring forgiveness and give you life to the fullest in the kingdom of God. And just like how much more healthy would the church's relationship to the world in our nation look if it just was so clear to people that we're not out to condemn them, right? But to see them acquitted, we want to see them come into the kingdom of God, right? So you see these three things, selfless service, wisdom, innocence, and deed word. These are very hard, Okay, very hard balances to, to strike in a church, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can grow in these things as a church. So these are like just principles of practices that we take as we engage the world. So now number three, what expectations should we have? Well, first, Jesus says, it will be hard. Okay, so our first expectation is that, like if Jesus makes one thing clear, it's that when you bind yourself to me, people will hate you for it. See how it says in verse 22, you will be, you will be, you will be hated by all for my namesake. Like one of the, the paradoxes of Jesus is he offers the most freeing news in the world, but yet the default human heart is to hate it. We hate the news because what it means is we're no longer the Lord of our lives. And so when you talk about Jesus, many people will Many people will hate you. And this is a reality that we have to accept. Like we, some, a lot of us have to get over our need to be liked by every person around us. But yet Jesus says, yeah, it, it will be hard. People will hate you. But do not worry. Do not worry. That's essentially all the rest of chapter 10. Do not worry no matter how much your coworkers hate you, no matter how much your family members or the culture hates you because of me. Do not worry. Why? because of two other expectations we should have. So he says, it will be hard, but 
Second expectation is that God will be with you. God will be with you. See, he says in verse 19, after he says in verse 17, you'll be delivered over to courts and flog you in the synagogues. Then in verse 19, he says, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. So in, in summary, he's not saying when you get put into a sticky situation, when people throw you on trial, as it were, okay, if not literally, the metaphorically, it's not that God will put you into a trance and then just use you like a puppet. That's not what Jesus is saying. The promise is that God will be with you. Okay, when you're under, when you're under pressure and you're wondering, am I gonna, how am I supposed to respond? What am I supposed to say? The promise is that you're not alone. And I wonder is Jesus, if as Jesus is giving this promise, he's thinking about his impending death. Because, right, as he keeps going and he is hated, he is delivered over to courts and he is flogged. And then when he goes to the cross, he does not have the experience of God being with him. Why? Because he's taking the aloneness that you and I deserve for our rebellion to God. Why? Because when he saw you, he didn't see your sin. He didn't see your opposition to him. He saw a face and he had compassion on you like a sheep without a shepherd. And then he came into the world to give his life for yours full and free and bring you into his kingdom so that you know God will always, always be with you when you're in these conversations and as you love the world. And it's not just that you're not alone, but also, maybe for some of you more relevantly, you, you will not be condemned by God when you blow it in these situations. So I think evangelism, it's one of those things like tithe and prayer. We hear about it and we immediately start to feel guilty about how we're doing or not doing in that area. And, you know, so you have a conversation, you walk away, oh my goodness, I should have said this, I shouldn't have said that. And maybe you think, you know, God's just up there like shaking his head like, oh, well, now what are we going to do? Like, how is my kingdom going to go forward? But the incredible news of the gospel is that because God adores you to the degree that he adores Jesus, you are never, ever, ever under the condemnation of God. Ever. Including in your witness. Okay, and so when you're, when you're in conversation, when you're, when you're trying to summon the courage to say something, Okay, say what you will, and God's going to use it. It's a lot like my two-year-old helps me make coffee most mornings, and grounds, coffee grounds often go everywhere, and the timer and the scale are often reset. I'm like, I threw off my ratios. But <laughs> honestly, like, I'm just, I love the fact that he's helping me make coffee, and you know what? The coffee gets made, and it's good, and that's how it is when you work with dad, so to speak, your heavenly father, to share the good news about Jesus, he doesn't condemn you. He's just glad that you're working with him to share the gospel. Okay, so he'll always be with you. And then number three, what's the, what's the other expectation we should have is that disciple-making will always be effective. Disciple-making will always be effective is the mission of the church. Okay, this is how Jesus ends Matthew, go make disciples. This is what we need to focus on. And there's a book that came out five years ago or so called The Benedict Option. I'm not sure how many of you have read it. It made the New York Times bestseller list. I actually didn't read it, but the author Rod Dreher, I think is how you pronounce his last name, 
essentially he's just talking about how should the church, how should Christians respond to a culture that's increasingly hostile to the, to the, to the gospel. And Andy Crouch, he's a solid Christian thinker. He summarizes the two premises of the book this way, and you can bring up the first premise. So premise number one of the Benedict Option is that social hostility and legal restrictions will undermine Christian institutions and limit individual Christians' participation in professions and public life within a generation. So he's predicting our government and our culture are going to, like, within a generation, probably impose norms that are so hostile to Christianity that it's going to hurt. Okay, so that's, that's premise number one. Premise number two in the Benedict Option is due to a lack of meaningful discipleship and acceptance of secularism and consumerism, Christianity will likely collapse among members of the dominant culture within a, gen- within a generation or so. So that's the two premises. The first is about the welcome to church, happy Memorial Day. Okay, so that's the two premises. The first is about the government, and the second is about the American church and how, by, because by and large, the American church has neglected real apprenticeship to Jesus and to help us like be equipped to be not consumers and not non-committal, but covenant members of one another. Instead, the, because of this, the church is probably going to die out if things continue as they are. And so he says, because of these two things, the government and the church's own practices, we're probably going to be in for a lot of hurt in a generation. So and some of these warnings of Jesus will start to feel very real. But then what Andy Crouch gives is he gives some, he gives some helpful reflections on these two premises. And regarding premise one, he asks, and the, all of these statistics are going to come up. Try not to read them all ahead. Just go with me one line at a time. Okay, so he says, regarding premise number one, regarding the government, he says, you know, becoming hostile toward Christianity, he says, what portion of the book is actually devoted to this claim? So, like, what portion of the Benedict Option is actually alarmist about the government? Uh, about 20%. Well, what portion of press coverage of the book was devoted to this claim? 90%. Okay, so the press is very excited to sound the alarm about the government. And then, not surprisingly, a portion of social media buzz devoted to this claim, 98%. Okay, social media loves that stuff. Likelihood of this claim being true, eh, 50%. And here's, here's what I love. The, the final one, how much of this should cause, cause distress for those who believe in the risen Jesus? 5%. Why? Because of the second premise, which is more important. So premise number two this is one that talks about due to lack of real discipleship within churches. Uh, the church within the, the Christians within the dominant culture will die out, at least in the West. It's growing globally, but in the West it'll die out. So portion of the book devoted to this claim, 80%. Okay, how we should be discipling one another in our local churches. Portion of press coverage devoted to this claim, 10%. It's not that exciting to cover discipleship okay, in the press. Portion of social media buzz devoted to this claim, 2%. Likelihood of this claim being true, 90%. Because he notices in the American church, we've, since we've become a lot more detached, a lot more noncommittal, this lack of discipleship, it, it creates high odds that Christianity will dwindle. How much of this should cause distress for those who believe in the risen Jesus, 100%? And this is, this is good news, actually, though. Because what he's saying is, it's exactly what Jesus is saying here. Human governments and cultures are going to do what human governments and cultures are going to do. This was true 2,000 years ago. It's true today. And the kingdom of God, thankfully, does not advance through 
politics, right? So no political party will destroy the kingdom of God. No political party will preserve the, the kingdom of God. Okay, instead, how the kingdom of God advances is by disciples making disciples in the context of a local church empowered by the Holy Spirit who are more compassionate toward their friends and enemies than anybody else they know, while at the same time refusing to conform to any of the norms or values of the world that are, odd, that are at odds with Jesus. And Jesus says, you, you focus on discipleship, the world's going to do what it's going to do. And I'm going to build my church. And so I just, I want to, here's the end. I want to encourage you guys because this is one of the reasons why I love our church. Because you guys are not consumers. Okay, you're not non-committal. Kelsey and I talk about this all the time. You care about discipleship, right? Being discipled and making other disciples and maturing disciples. And so we do not need to worry. It doesn't matter what swirls around. Jesus is going to build his church. And so let's take encouragement in that, and let's ask God to continue to, to be with us as he does this within our community. Okay, let's pray.